And we're back with the Rocky Mountain Review here on 90.5 KCC Fort Collins. My name is Maximus Hunter. And I'm Ren Wadsworth. We're about to head into an interview I did about a week ago with Allison Kung from 23andMe. Allison is the Director of Genetics Outreach, and uh, she's talking about some new programs 23andMe DNA tests have for public consumption. Um, like I said, this interview was recorded uh, last week. So uh, we can't do any live interaction during the interview, but we would love you to text your questions in for the discussion afterwards with Professor Daniel Sloan, who is a genetics professor here at CSU. And for any questions for him, text us 970-491-5278 or tweet at us at KCSU. Once again, that's 970-491-5278. Without any further ado, here is 23andMe's Allison Kung. So first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Allison. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Max. So just to start off, for our listeners who uh, may not have heard of 23andMe, could you just describe what the uh, service does? Yeah, of course. So 23andMe is a direct-to-consumer genetic test that offers an ancestry and a health service. So essentially, we conduct a process called genotyping, where we analyze specific windows of DNA that our researchers have found provide interesting information about a person's ancestry, traits, or health. So it's pretty simple. All you do is spit in a tube, you send it off to the lab, and then two to three weeks later, um, you get your results um, by logging into our website. And what kind of things can you learn from these tests? So there are three main things that we uh, launched so the first one being um, ancestry composition. So ancestry composition is essentially your ethnicity estimate, where we take your DNA and compare it to reference populations from all over the world in order to give you a percentage breakdown down to the 0.1% of what your makeup is. And then the second thing that we now have, which is brand new, is a auto-populated family tree. So this is really neat because essentially what it does is it leverages a newly created algorithm and the 10 million people in our database to give you a genetics or DNA-based family tree. So you can see, you know, of your closest relatives, like how is it that you exactly are related to each other? Third thing that we offer now is that um, we give you more than 35 trait reports. What traits are... They are essentially like a fun way for you to understand how your DNA influences your appearance and senses from anything like eye color to taste preferences. So it's just a, it's an interesting way to engage with your genetics and see how um, it affects um, your daily appearance. That's very interesting. And you're telling me you can get all of that from a little bit of spit in a tube? That's right. (laughs) So how, how does that work? Yeah, so I kind of mentioned the, the genotyping experience. So then essentially what our how it works is that during the genotyping process, right, we're looking at those specific windows of DNA, and we basically have identified whether it's for ancestry or for traits or for our other service health, um, our product scientists are running those windows against different algorithms that we have for each of these features. So for every single report, they have, we have proprietary algorithms that determine like based on the commonalities of your DNA and other people's DNA and of known associated conditions, we can provide you reports then on, um, 
on these various sort of aspects of your DNA. Interesting. So uh, where, where does the data come from? Does it come from your own uh, DNA research? Does it come from uh, research of others? Because it sounds like you're comparing uh, each individual tester to kind of a collection. Yeah. So the reference data, yeah, the reference data sets come from publicly available data sets as well as our own customers who have consented to research. And in terms of the algorithms, those are things that we, um, our scientists, make in-house, right? <laughs> they have done a lot of research and med and combined many studies and conducted our own research to come up with these algorithms. It sounds like uh, there's, so you've got the three new categories of information you can, you can gain from these tests. Uh, what kind of benefits can that give people? What kind of applications can this information have? Yeah, so no, it's, um, it's all very interesting because, I mean, one of the things that I think 23andMe provides more than anything is the diversity aspect, right? A lot of the data that is publicly out there right now or existing research is, is quite limited. A lot of the representation comes mostly from people of European descent, which in the long run um, really affects actually even ancestry or medical discoveries. So for us, because we have we, we really focus on um, diversity efforts in order to get data from around the world through our Population Collaborations Project and Global Genetics Project. And the success of these programs really feed back into our projects where we're able to then look at a more diverse set of um, data to then come up with better results for our customers. Makes sense. So um, uh, on your website, I noticed that one of the, uh, one of the applications of 23andMe is health prediction. Uh, would you say that that can uh, that people can use genetics to look at what their potential health uh, risks might be in the future? Yeah. So you're talking about our um, health and ancestry service. So on top of the ancestry um, features that I mentioned earlier, we also have a health service, which does allow you to understand um, three different sets of health reports. Um, the first one being health predisposition, which is essentially we look at genetic factors that may influence your chances of developing certain health conditions, such as type 2 diabetes um, and also breast cancer. Um, another type of health report that we provide is carrier status. So these are essentially specific genetic variants that may not affect your health, but could affect your children's health, like cystic fibrosis. And then the third set is wellness reports, and that's how your DNA may affect your body's response to diet, exercise, or sleep. So, for example, some people only need to have one cup of coffee a day. Others need to have six. So it just depends on the person. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, ethically, what can you do with uh, genetic health predictions? Uh, if someone like a healthcare provider were to get that information, they could use it to gouge your price or something along those lines. Oh, I see what you mean here. Sorry. So we. I mean, we have legislation, there is legislation that protects um, individuals from the, this sort of information landing into healthcare providers. So if you're talking about health insurance, there is legislation called GINA. Um, essentially, health insurance companies are not allowed to access the information unless for some reason you want them to, like you as an individual want to share that with them. I mean, more than anything, um, I mean, we're meant to be a diagnostic test, so it's, you know, not a, sorry, oh, sorry, we're not a diagnostic test, <laughs> um, and it's meant to be shared, you're supposed to take it to your health provider to kind of help have them help you understand it. Gotcha. So it's uh, the person, once they get their results, it's up to them what they do with it. 
Exactly. Right. But there's no reason we don't share the, any of your information with employers or health insurance companies. The control is also in the individual's hands. Like you have the option to delete um, your data or destroy your sample as well. Oh. Interesting. Um, do you have any any stories of uh, a time 23andMe has uh, you've seen it really uh, change someone's life? Yeah, for sure. We have, uh, I mean, honestly, we hear stories every day from many customers where the, the test has changed their lives. I mean, more than anything, um, it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, the, the beauty of the DNA test, it's just like it's a unique, personalized story of every person. So we hear a lot of stories from like, adoptees, um, finding long-lost adoptees who have found each other. And wow. also, I mean... The cool thing is that there's something for everyone. Like, I mean, in my case, I've been on 23andMe for three years and then have reconnected with an uncle who our family lost touch with for 30 years. And it turns out he lives 20 minutes away from me and his wife is my favorite food blogger. That's incredible. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. And then it's really interesting because we also, I mean, another aspect too is that one of our health reports is for um, the BRCA variant so a lot of people don't actually know that they're Ashkenazi Jewish and Ashkenazi Jewish people um, have a predisposition or tend to have a predisposition to um, carry the BRCA variants or one of the BRCA variants um, putting them at a higher risk for ovarian breast cancer so for a lot of our customers um, they take the test and then they realize they're at a higher risk and then confirm the results with their doctor and able to take preventative measures that's good um, fun fact, I'm actually Ashkenazi Jewish, so I just learned something. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, wow. Good. That's probably good to know. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, we'll wrap this up. I just, uh, for like a final question, um, what, with, with these three new additions to 23andMe, uh, what, what would you like to see happen with these three new additions? How would you like to see people react? I think with these three new additions, this, the biggest thing for us is for people to kind of have a better understanding of who they are and also to, you know, to have something to talk to their families about and to connect with potentially other family out there that they didn't know about. Um, more than anything, I think the mission of our company really is to help people access, understand, and benefit from their human genome. So we, we hope through these three features, this they give people a better understanding of who they are as a whole um, and just kind of adds to their life story. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Allison. That was Allison Kong of 23andMe Genetic Tests. Um, thank you so much, Allison, for taking the time to talk with us. Um, it was really... It's enlightening. It's really interesting stuff. And because we wanted to keep that conversation going, we actually have a genetics professor in the studio with us today. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Great to uh, be here. My name is Dan Sloan. I'm in the Department of Biology here at CSU. I've been here about uh, six years or so. So first time on uh, KCSU. Thanks for joining us, Professor Thanks Sloan. For coming on. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you what you've been working on? Uh, sure. So I describe myself as an evolutionary biologist, and in the sort of current day and age of the biological sciences, we like to think about how evolution plays out at a molecular level. So that includes uh, gene and DNA sequences, protein sequences and structures, and, and whole genomes. And part of that's not just things that have happened in the past, but how things may look in the future, right? 
Sure, absolutely. There's a lot of work in projecting where evolution's going in addition to what it's done in the past. Right on. So, uh, going back to the interview Max did earlier, uh, the 23andMe reports are based on approximately 10 million uh, people in a database um, that 23andMe has collected over the years. And how accurate do you think those reports are? Uh, I think it would depend a lot on what element of the report you're, you're talking about, and it might also depend on who you are, because those 10 million samples that they've collected are not necessarily evenly distributed across the global human population. There's certainly, uh, that's something that's affected the field of human genomics for a long time, uh, where there was, say, overrepresented sampling of Europeans and individuals of European ancestry early on. So if you were looking for information uh, related to a European individual, you'd have a much richer data set to pull from than, say, other human uh, populations. Uh, so it might depend on exactly what type of element you're pulling out of these uh, databases. So let's, let's get a little more specific and talk about health then. Um, do you think that these reports could provide information for people um, to change how they approach their health in a way that they weren't already, such as, you know, just eating better and exercising? Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, you know, I'm not a medical practitioner or professional, but it's clear that one direction that the field of medicine is going in is personal genomics because, you know, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to all health uh, problems. And the, uh, the basis of some of these health guidance, health uh, um, information you get from 23andMe isn't that complicated. It, you know, it comes from techniques that sound really complicated, like genome-wide association study. But all that's doing is mining a rich data set, like 23andMe has, looking at each little window within the genome and asking whether the specific variant, the specific form of DNA that an individual has at that position is correlated with health outcomes. So they, uh, you know, sample the diversity of human populations and they say, do individuals with this genetic variant uh, have a higher chance of developing a particular form of cancer uh, or a, you know, particular uh, neurodegenerative disease? Um, doesn't have to be health related. You know, 23andMe is also broken ground in things like whether you do or do not smell that weird smell in your asparagus you know, your urine yeah. after eating asparagus right it can be any trait you want you know the trivial or the uh, the you know of great importance when it comes to, to biomedicine so in an, a non uh, in, a, in a more consumer point of view in the side of healthcare, how do you think these kind of technologies will change how we approach healthcare, not just for like, um, you know, treating them, but as far as coverage? I mean, right now, 23andMe, they told us they can't provide these tests to healthcare providers. But if a client chooses to, they can. Uh, do you think there could be some kind of incentive to give a healthcare provider your genetic profile? I would be worried about giving a uh, health insurer uh, my genetic uh, profile. Uh, there definitely would be a, an incentive to give a healthcare provider your genetic profile because it potentially gives them actionable information on how to treat you. Uh, so it kind of depends on whom you're interacting with and whether it's someone who has your health interests in mind or their own financial interests in mind. Um, so. So someone with a genetic predisposition for illness, could you think they could be taken advantage of by a 
health insurance companies say if that information were public? I personally would worry about that. You know, I you know, I have had my 23andMe profile done, um, and I'm fairly open about sharing it. I show snippets of it in front of my genetics class, let's say, but it's not something that I would be comfortable making publicly accessible because, you know, we live in a world where people are making decisions and the legislative landscape on, on issues like this is certainly still in flux. And there's at least the potential that I could imagine for uh, health insurers to, to take advantage of, of that information. Others are more open in sharing it, though. You know, very early on, people like uh, uh, Craig Venter, who's a sort of well-known and somewhat flamboyant pioneer in the field of genomics, had his own human genome sequence, not just parts of it with 23andMe, which only looks at a small portion of he, your... He was one of the first to have the whole thing, right? Yep. So he had uh, uh, his entire genome uh, sequenced, and he made it publicly available, uh, I believe with the exception of one small region that's known to be associated with Alzheimer's because he himself didn't really want to know uh, whether he was uh, at risk there. I'm not entirely sure of that, but I believe that was the one reason that he, uh, one region of the of his own data that he had masked. Gotcha. So we're gonna we're gonna loop back around to some of the the dangers of uh, wholesale bioinformatics and maybe some of the legislative stuff. But I think uh, Ren is gonna take this next question in a little bit of a different direction. Yeah. So another thing that uh, 23andMe uh, claims is to have uh, access to an ancestry composition where a consumer's DNA is ethnically from and how accurate do you think that's going to be i i mean it's tough for me to, to quantify that but i think there's a uh you know a, at this point with the amount of data that uh are available to map ancestry uh i think it is quite accurate um in my own personal case you know i uh you know, I'm what a geneticist would call an F1, which is sort of the result of two different uh, uh, lines or population crossings. So uh, my father is an Ashkenazi Jew. Uh, my mother is of Northwestern European uh, descent, particularly uh, Wales and the British Isles. And so when I look at my ancestry composition, not only do I see that 50-50 mixture, I can immediately look at the parts of my genome and, the, and figure out which chromosome came from mom and which chromosome came from dad because they're sort of just uh, painted, if you will, along the length of them with that ancestry. And so it, for me personally, it recovers uh, quite clearly what I know about my own genealogy through sort of family oral history and, and where I know my, my ancestors came from. And again, the numbers that you quoted, like having 10 million samples to work from, from uh, you know, across the globe, gives a lot of power in, in reconstructing uh, that type of information. So. And then a lot of these tests um, give you information into your history that you're, say, 12% Native American or 1% African American. What kind of societal implications do you think having a genetic ethnicity profile have when a lot of consumers a lot of consumers start claiming that ethnicity as part of their own. And when you're discussing that kind of thing in a, in a larger context of society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I would imagine one interesting outcome of 
people being more aware of their ancestry and not just in a rough sense like, oh, I know where my four grandparents came from, so that gives me a quarter each, but actually down to finer scale percentages is the recognition of how genetically mixed, or what you know, geneticists would call admixed, uh, the human population is. Um, we are not a species that has a long, long history of isolation and genetic differentiation. So uh, a lot of our, our populations actually have sort of contributions uh, from very uh, different subpopulations, and that that's the norm and not uh, the exception, that you might have small percentages from different regions of the, uh, the globe that you didn't automatically uh, sort of you know, think of yourself uh, as descending from. So I think that could create a lot of awareness that you know, human populations are actually pretty mixed and not that genetically differentiated by what we typically think of in terms of things like race and, and whatnot. So let's put on our uh, our George Orwellian science fiction thinking caps for a second and picture a future world where uh, everyone's genetic information is in a database like 23andMe and all that information is for sale. What kind of consequences do you think that would have? Uh, I mean, the, the two obvious ones that, you know, one we've already discussed is the potential of, you know, people that you might not necessarily want to having uh, information about your risk for disease because that could play out in terms of uh, how much you pay for health insurance and things like that. Uh, and then another thing that we've we've already seen and been in the news recently is stuff like the uh, law enforcement using genetic databases to track down uh, people and, and suspects. So there's been, you know, high profile uh, examples in the news where, you know, people haven't necessarily found the exact suspect in a DNA database, but they've taken a DNA uh, sample that's associated with a crime scene and gone into some of the public databases that are more open in sharing DNA and found a close relative uh, based on similarity in DNA sequence and then used that as the next step of tracking down the uh, uh, purported criminal. So, you know, depending on what you feel about that and your own privacy uh, concerns, it does sort of raise the obvious question. It's not just your choice, right, as to whether yeah. you make your genetic information public when your relatives start making their genetic information uh, public that indirectly gives the world insight into your uh, uh, DNA and your um, uh, own genetic information so it's kind of like the whole vaccination thing where if one person isn't vaccinated kind of affects the people around you absolutely yep it's definitely a, a choice that's not quite as private as sometimes we think and can affect other people interesting so um, an another possible application, if with my sci-fi thinking cap on, um, that I, I can't credit this is my own idea, this was my dad's idea, but um, say a company like Juul could learn that certain people have a genetic predictor for addiction, or to be more susceptible to addiction, um, and eventually this information, you know, eventually everyone's uh, DNA test you can see, and uh, advertisers can see that you are more likely to have this predictor for addiction and then maybe advertise to you even if you don't use a jewel they could advertise jewel products to you uh do you think that is something that could happen and w would there be a benefit to that or is that just a bad thing yeah um 
I do imagine it's something that could happen. And when you think about these data sets, you know, we immediately think of the genetic information, the sort of, you know, whole genome sequencing or the, uh, you know, s more subset genotyping that uh, services like 23andMe provide. Uh, and that's basically the DNA side. But the other half of the equation here and the other half of any kind of analysis is on the tr your traits, right? You know, you need to link that to medical conditions like, you know, susceptibility to disease or to some sort of, you know, uh, personal preference. So that's the other half of the data that needs to be collected when, you know, companies like 23andMe or others try to link your DNA to traits that might be relevant to someone like, say, uh, advertisers. And, you know, so 23andMe is also very active in that, you know, and uh, if you have their service performed, one thing you'll very quickly find is they will ping you constantly with opportunities and questions to answer. They're totally voluntary. Uh, and some of those are medical in nature, but some of them are just silly things like, are you a Mac versus PC user, right? And looking to whether there's any association there. But the fact that they would even ask that question does suggest that you could extend the thinking beyond simple medical traits or simple ancestry traits to issues of personal preference, which you don't need to be a rocket science to, to see that there's a potential connection there to marketing and advertising. Um, and I certainly am not one to think that, you know, our, uh, our susceptibility to advertising is entirely genetic, but I think it's very reasonable to imagine that there's a genetic component to it. And if you really, you know, dug in there, that there'd be some information that, uh, uh, you know, the, the commercial world could take advantage of. So in your opinion, is there a way that we can prevent the abuse of uh, bioinformatics? Um, I mean, I, it does strike me as a place where there's some uh, role for uh, federal or governmental oversight. And, you know, I think this is uh, an area where if it's turned entirely into the Wild West and it's set just by individual users trying to control their privacy settings and uh, companies, you know, uh, being at the discretion to determine what it is or is not okay, that you are going to open it up to sort of abuse by the fringe or, or rogue elements. Um, it's not on the DNA or genome sequencing side, but one thing that's you know really smacked the field of biotechnology in the face in the in the past year is on the actual genetic manipulation side. There's a uh, technology that's become uh, quite prolific and and sort of you know raised awareness in the public conscience, consciousness called CRISPR uh, gene editing. Um, and that has just made it a lot easier to make genetic modifications to uh, to organisms of all types. And that's been going on uh, for, for over a decade now, you know, and preceding techniques of gene editing had you know, long predated that. But CRISPR's made it a lot easier. And the one thing that sort of brought it warp speed though into the public consciousness was actual birth of human uh, babies that had been edited. You know, that was Designer something- Designer babies. Yeah, exactly. And this was, you know, a, a particular, uh, a single group that was acting. It surprised the field. It, it, people didn't realize that someone was, you know, actually in the, pro the process of doing this. Uh, 
not just to human cells, not just as a therapeutic to treat a, a particular part of somebody's body, but actually to change the genetic material of the entire child. And so that, you know, was, you know, one small research group, um, and they kind of changed the entire landscape of the field and, and shocked a lot of people. And so I think you could have the same type element if you just say, leave uh, the decision making up to individual companies, the field ends up getting shaped by the fringe of the, uh, the distribution. Of People those doing the most wild things. So what do you think that legal, legal avenue could look like? Um, yeah, uh, I think the challenge would be, you know, what the international standard would be. Um, you could certainly have uh, at each uh, level, you know, com uh, countries individually coming up with their, their own laws. Um, but then if there's heterogeneity across different countries, you know, people then flock to the, the more permissive uh, uh, countries. Um, but yeah, that would at least be the starting place that, you know, at a uh, national level, uh, individual countries set restrictions and guidelines on what can be done uh, with uh, uh, certain data sets. And, you know, if you are an insurance company operating in the United States, you cannot make use of somebody's individual genotype data to set a personalized rate of, uh, uh, you know, cost for their health insurance, for example. So do you think the United States is going to be uh, a leader in this? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the United States will, will be up front in some respect because a lot of the, the companies, a lot of the research are centered here. Um, the United States, in my experience, uh, is a little less squeamish, though, about uh, privacy issues and biotechnology issues than places like Europe, for example. I mean, you see that in debates over genetically modified organisms and introduction of genetic modifications into to crop systems. Uh, Europe has been much more resistant uh, to that. So so if uh, by leader you mean who's going to be the most restrictive and uh, limiting in, in passing uh, legislations, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Europe is, is sort of more aggressive in that respect than the United States. But that's purely a guess on my part. I, I don't know. Yeah, gotcha. I was going to ask you if you thought that the United States would even make restrictions on especially selling uh, your personal biological information to companies since there's not a lot of pushback currently about selling your personal information to companies right now. Yeah, in any regard. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's a good question, right? I and mean, we definitely are, you know, growing up and seeing generations come along that are just much less sensitive to privacy issues. I mean, I think I'm, you know, I'm probably in a, a you know, a generation that predated millennials, and I think I am more of a private person and find it a little bit less comfortable with sort of sharing my own uh, private information. Um, that being said, and, and I don't know, I just get a sense that there's people are a little bit more reserved about sharing their genetic information than, say, their day-to-day -day life social media persona where people have gotten so open about. So I still think there's a little bit of uh, hesitancy and a fear of the idea of their genetics uh, getting out there and being used against them because there's such a lack of control yeah, uh, over it. It's kind of the personal. final frontier of sharing personal information because once you're sharing, you know, the the yeah. building what blocks your DNA. <laughs> There's not yeah. much more personal you can share than that. Yeah. Um, we're going to wrap this up in a second. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Sloan. I just wanted to know if you had any final thoughts to share with our listeners. 
Uh, uh, a lot, I guess. I mean, I, I, this is definitely an area, and I'm not a human geneticist, um, but just because of the data that are available, you know, we've had folks in our lab uh, who are interested in evolutionary questions, you know, take advantage of these data sets that are out there. So, I mean, I think some of the, the conversation we've had is one of concern and fear and what could go wrong and how things like this can be misused. But, you know, I don't think I'd want to leave it on that note because they're really amazing data sets that are being produced that give us so much insight into our own biology and create so many opportunities uh, to learn more about uh, human history, human, you know, medicine. And I think, you know, it really is an exciting and a positive time to be making use of uh, technologies like this and, and the data sets that they produce. Uh, so I think there's a lot of reason for optimism and excitement and not just sort of you know, fear about where they might be leading. So. Right on. Well, thank you so much, Professor Sloan, for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me.